It was the American Midwest. Um, a few years back, there was a couple who were in mid to late 30s, and they'd been farming for some time, crop farming. And uh, life had been pretty hard for them. It had been a challenge farming, and, and things had got you know, pretty difficult. Even their marriage was kind of struggling a wee bit. And they were in bed one night, and um, they could hear this familiar sound in the distance of a tornado. And uh, it was often it occurred in those parts of the states. The tornado kind of took a path, and it um, veered away from where their property was. But this time, as they were lying in bed, they could hear the sound get louder and louder. And all of a sudden, the house started to shake a little. And, and then, of course, the walls started to move in and out and in and out, and the roof blew off, the walls collapsed. And the bed was taken up in the tornado and landed in a field about 500 metres away. And, of course, they were just brushed themselves off, and they were, the woman was, the wife was crying, she was upset, and, and, and the husband tries to console her and says, listen, it's not that bad, honey, the, the, the house is destroyed, but we're okay, and she said she was crying, and, and then she said, look, these, look, I'm not upset, these are not tears of joy, these are tears of joy, these are, I'm happy, she said, we've been married for 14 years, and this is the first time we've been out together. <laughs> So happiness in the middle, in the middle of a tornado. So this morning, I want to talk about happiness and, and joy and, and laughter, even in the middle of the tornadoes of life. And what place does happiness and joy and laughter have in the life of a follower of Jesus um, or in church, if indeed there is any place for laughter in church? When you're a kid, when you're a kid, church can be boring, can't it? I hear several older men saying yes <laughs> as well. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but a few weeks ago, there was a young boy who crawled from, and you've got to, young, young kids got to make their own fun in church, right? And they entertain themselves, they occupy themselves. I know that parents bring that little box of raisins, but that doesn't last long, you know. So kids make their own fun. But So a few weeks ago, there was this little boy who, who crawled from one end of the chairs, under the chairs, from that side to the next. Who saw that? You see? Now, you, you all thought that was cute. You know, he was looking after himself, he's in, being entertained and that. But you know how we, when we sit down, we put our wallet and our purse and, 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 our, and our cell phone under the seat that kid was stuffing them all inside his jersey and taking them back to his dad, you know. It's okay, they all went in the collection. <laughs> I want to read just a, um, a couple of short passages. The first one's in Galatians chapter, chapter 5. It's a passage that we're familiar with and I'm going to read it from the, the, um, the Passion uh, Version, but it says this, But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions, a joy that overflows, a peace that subdues, a patience that endures, kindness in action, a life that's full of virtue, a, a faith that prevails no matter what happens, a gentleness of heart, and a strength of spirit. Now, the definition of fruit is that which is produced by the inherent energy of a living organism. 
And what that passage is saying is that when the energy of God or the life of God is within us, it produces those types of fruit. Now, they are not just kind of theoretical virtues that sit up in here. Those are fruits that outwork in the activity of everyday life. In other words, it says that joy overflows and the delight, the pleasure, the authentic happiness of joy is something that overflows when this fruit is being produced in our life. And it's also something that sits beneath us and supports us and and gives a foundation when we face the curveballs of life and when, if you like, the tornadoes hit us. We have that joy. Now, Authentic happiness or joy is not what we would, what our culture would normally call happiness. Happiness has been sort of studied many, many times. And one guy who's looked at it is a guy called Martin Seligman. And he spent 30 years studying happiness, so he should know a little bit about it. But he said that real authentic happiness has very little to do with the circumstances of life. It doesn't have a lot to do with your education. It doesn't have much to do with, um, with your finances, whether you've got a lot of money or haven't got much money at all. In fact, it doesn't have much to do with, with your health. Authentic happiness doesn't have anything to do with your travel or the climate that you live in. So, so what makes joy joy? What makes authentic happiness something that, that not only sits within and holds us tight and secure when the tornadoes hit, but something that really overflows and influences those around us. And I've got a list of seven ingredients, and I wonder if we can have that on the screen there, please. <coughs> seven ingredients. In other words, if you are mixing up in the kitchen, if you are mixing up a joy cake, there is such a thing as a joy cake, isn't it? There is. Eh? I know my baking. I know my baking. There is such a thing as a joy cake. If you are mixing up a joy cake, these are the seven ingredients that you would use. All right, a satisfaction with the past and the present. In other words, acknowledging that you've made mistakes and accepting that some of the curveballs of life have really had an impact on you, on your history. But also understanding that, that there is there's nothing you can do about the past apart from maybe learn from the mistakes and also allowing God to use the past to help shape and define your future. So that's the first one, satisfaction with the past and the present. Secondly, being comfortable in your own skin. Now this is really important. It's just, it's being, I don't know, it's just being secure in who you are. Knowing that we're all different. Knowing that you are unique. I mean, some of you are more unique than others, but we're different. God has made us all different. I mean, I think... I used, to, um, I used to know someone who worked at General Motors down the road here at Trentham. And he used to say, never buy a Holden that was put together on a Friday afternoon. Now, if you were a Ford fan, you would say, never buy a Holden, period. But he would say, never buy a Holden that was put together on a Friday afternoon because the job was going to be kind of substandard. I don't know. Have you ever looked in the mirror and considered some of your own idiosyncrasies and that, and wondered if you were put together on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> you, ever, you ever thought that, you know? 
It may be the angels, the angels it was 4.15, 4.30 and they were ready to knock off and go, go out on Friday night. I mean, we, I don't know, where do angels go on a Friday night? <laughs> Dean, you'd know, you're the pastor, you'd know that. <laughs> maybe, maybe they go to the Milky Way bar, I don't know. But so, and, and then, then God comes in and says, listen, I want one more off the assembly line by the end of the day. And they're saying, look, there's no parts here. We're just about out of parts. The next lot comes in next week. We've got nothing. And here's the hair box. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of hair left in there, but it's not a lot, you know. And then the, look at the eyes. We've got a couple of eyes there, but they, they look opposite ways most of the time, you know. You're never going to get there. And then, well, that's a brain. I mean... <laughs> I mean, we've already used that brain and taken it out of their body because it kept on falling off things and falling over. I mean, it was, was terrible. And it's warped. It's twisted. You know? And here I am. You know? <laughs> you know, I... But the Bible says, the Bible says that, that he was there when we were being formed in our mother's womb. You know? And that doesn't mean to say that God was looking on and thinking, oh, gee, this is going to be interesting. It, it means that, that my photo was on his fridge before I was born, you know. He knows everything about me. He put me together. And no one can, no one can do what I can do. No one can do what God cannot replace you. You're special. You're unique. And I guess... The best reason for joy being evident in your life is actually sitting on your seat right now. It's you. Not someone else on your seat, but it's you. All right, being comfortable in your own skin. Next one. Gratitude and thankfulness. Being thankful is one of the fundamental um, ingredients actually for a meaning in life. And appreciating every day that we have being thankful for life itself. It's a very important thing to be thankful, to be appreciative, to, 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 be, to have a sense of gratitude for what, what God has given us, for life itself. It's a challenge for the atheist, isn't it? Because who do they thank? Hmm. All right, number, number four. The capacity to forgive and forget. It's another really important ingredient to be, to be full of joy is to, is to keep short accounts with people, really short accounts. And the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, don't, don't go to bed angry. Phyllis Diller, the American comedian, says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, stay up and fight. <laughs> But when, if you're holding a grudge against someone, it's, it's allowing them to live rent-free in your mind. And, and it actually ends up doing you more damage than the other person. It's like you drinking poison but waiting for the other person to die. All right. The capacity to forgive and forget. Number five, focus on a cause bigger than yourself. That is so important. We were not wired to be self-absorbed to be self-obsessed. We are wired to live for something, for someone far bigger than us that will outlast us. That's how we're made. When Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, it wasn't because it was a means by which we can get all these things. He was saying that you are wired, you are made for a cause that's bigger than you and it's his kingdom. It's his world. All right. 
Number six is strong and intimate loving relationships. We have this basic need to love and to be loved. And we do imitate God in our relationships with all those around us. And he loves impartially and he loves unconditionally. And no one, nothing I have done in the past will cause God to love me less. Nothing I will do tomorrow will cause him to love me more. He loves me impartially, unconditionally. And we use that as a model in our love and our relationships with others as well. All right, number seven. Do we have a number seven? Yeah, hope and faith. You know, we have this craving. I, I, I think it's a desire that's built within all of us to want to know what's ahead. We want to know the future. We want to know some clarity. We want to know it's around the next corner, don't we? We want to, we want to know what's going on in life in two, five, ten years' time. But there are no guarantees. And so we are called, rather than to know the future, we're called to trust the one who knows the future. It's a story about John Kavanagh, a, um, a Jesuit priest who was also a journalist, and he went as part of his spiritual uh, pilgrimage to spend some time with Mother Teresa in the House of the, House of the Dying in Calcutta. And it, there came an opportunity for, for him to have Mother Teresa pray for him, and she asked him what he would like prayed for. And he said, I would like prayer for clarity for my future. And she said, I can't do that, but I can pray. I can pray that you'd learn to trust, learn to have faith. And so we trust, even knowing that, that life can change. You see, what's the saying? Life is what happens when we have other things planned. Isn't that right? Stuff happens, eh? And we just don't know the future, and yet we're called to trust. And so that even when the, the curveballs are thrown at us or we're confronted with the tornadoes, that, that we can stand firm with that foundation and then that joy can be expressed and that authentic happiness can be expressed in our life. I've asked Viv to come and sing a song that kind of expresses this, um, even when the damage is done, that God is, is looking after us and we're trusting him day by day. Thanks, honey.
want to know what she said to me, don't you? <laughs> what she said is that now gives me permission to lose my place. All right? <laughs> so, joy, with those seven ingredients, when we have the energy and the life of God working within us, and those seven ingredients are mixed in, and this joy is expressed... It changes our life, but it also changes the lives of those that we live with. It gives us sustaining power when faced with the difficulties and the, and the tornadoes and, as Viv saying, the damage that comes. Just as we have fruit inspectors in our world, you know, inspecting orchards and uh, fruits before they are exported or for human consumption, so should we inspect the fruits produced in our life. And it's a good opportunity for, for us to inspect the joy. Is it just a, are we just pursuing happiness for happiness sake? Or are we after something that's far deeper and greater that will hold us firm when the difficult times happen and also influence the lives of others around us? Okay, my next passage I want to read is, we're going to do a bit of a jump now. Psalm 126. Right, this is um, the story of the of the Hebrews being released from captivity, and it says this: It was like a dream come true when you freed us from our bondage and brought us back to Zion. We laughed and laughed and overflowed with gladness. We were shouting for joy and singing and feasting. We were we were shouting your praise. All the nations saw it and joined in us, joined with us, saying, The Lord has done great miracles for them. Now that is a psalm that is written after the 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 Hebrews were, were brought back from seventy years of captivity in Babylon. And we're all familiar with that Boney M song, right? Uh, by the rivers of Babylon. So that was that's actually taken out of Psalm 137. That is kind of their their plight sitting in this foreign land and and this passage I've just read really is their is their feasting and celebrating and joy of being brought back to the land that they hadn't been in for seventy years. Now you imagine what it would be like if we'd as a nation been moved out of New Zealand seventy years ago. Many of us here wouldn't know what our country was like. We would have had stories told from parents or grandparents and we have been taken back to this beautiful country. And that's what they're, that's what they're celebrating. They're, they're, they're joyous. They're, they're feasting. They're laughing. In fact, it opens up by saying it's the only time in the book of Psalm, in Psalms where the word dream is used in that context. We thought it was a dream. In other words, pinch me. Is this really true? You know, we're, we're back in our homeland. That was something for them to celebrate and to express laughter and joy and um, really the story of Israel's imprisonment or their captivity in Babylon and their subsequent release 70 years later is really a picture of mankind's own captivity and our release because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Now, how many of, how many of you, when you first came to Christ, experience this sort of freedom and a sense of joy that you hadn't experienced before? How many of you? Yeah. 
And that freedom can be on many different levels, can't it? A freedom that I've, I've found home. It's, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm wired to be. Or a freedom from being constrained by the, the rules and the, the boundaries of another culture because now I'm free to, to live in such a way that I've, in, in the way that I've been created to live. Or maybe freedom because of being cleansed and washed from the stuff that's been inside that needed to be dealt with. But also knowing that there are freedom, there are boundaries and constraints in this new world as well, but they are there to enhance life and beautify it and protect us. So where does laughter come from? Where does this kind of this capacity to express this joy and, and celebration and, and pleasure that, and delight that we kind of get into? Laughter. Where does it come from? You know, I believe it comes from God. God, we're made in God's image and a God who enjoys laughter. And we're made to journey with this God who, who does enjoy laughter. And I reckon when we gather as God's people, the full spectrum of emotion should be expressed. There'll be times when we're somber. There'll be times when we're reflective and we meditate and we, we're quiet. But there should be times also when we're raucous and it's celebration and it's laughter and it's extreme. In fact, I believe that the doors of this church and any church should be being beaten down by people on the outside saying, what makes these people so happy, you know? What makes them so joyous? And laughter is a present taste of heaven. Get used to it. Isn't that right? But there are always people who kind of look like, Christians who look like they've been baptised in lemon juice, right? <laughs> or they've had, they've, had hot, they've had a hot chilli for communion, you know? And they need to send a missionary to their face to tell it about Jesus, you know? There are always people like that, but what about, what about Jesus? Did he have a sense of humour? I think he did. Just as our humour today is tied very much to our culture, for example, the Americans have a different sense of humour than the English do. The Kiwis have a different sense of humour than the Australians do. The Australians are generally tied around having a picture, you know? We have, a, in the, in the 2,000 years ago in, in the land of, of Israel, the Hebrews had, their humour was tied around satire and irony and imagery. And Jesus often used those when he was talking with the people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, when he was talking with the people about judging each other, he said, what are you worried, what are you worried about the speck of sawdust in someone's eye when there's a log in your own eye? Now, the, the, the ridiculous image of someone walking around with a piece of 4 by 2 sticking out of their eye would have caused the people who were listening to, to laugh. That was, that was funny to them. That was humorous. And later on in Matthew, when Jesus was talking to the um, Pharisees, and he often addressed them with, in a very satirical way, and they weren't looking after the, the people as they were supposed to. They weren't expressing compassion or mercy they weren't providing justice like they were supposed to. And he said, you're not doing these things. All you're worried about is, is the legalistic religious stuff and you are, you're really tithing the herbs in your garden rather than caring for the people. And then he says these words, he says, it's like you are, you're straining on a gnat 
but you're swallowing a camel. Now, in today's speak, that's like, that's like us having a cup of tea and a sandfly falls in it. We've got this, the teaspoon out and we're trying to flick the sandfly out of the cup of tea, but all at the same time we're choking on a cow, you know? So, so Jesus used satire in that way. Later on, I think it was in Luke 13, the Pharisees came to Jesus and, and, um, and they said, Herod's, Herod's going to kill you. He's out to get you. Now, Jesus said, go tell that fox. Now, a fox was a nuisance. It's like using the word pukeko or opossum or rat. Now, if Jesus wanted to refer to Herod with some esteem and respect, he would have said, go tell that bear or go tell that lion. But he said, go tell that nuisance. Now, you can imagine the people the next day around the well, you know, around the, the, the people who gathered around, and the well was really a, a first century cafe, you know, that's what it was. The coffee of choice was a long black. You know, it's a long way down there and it was black at the bottom, you know. <laughs> but you can imagine the people saying, no, look, I was outside the synagogue yesterday and you got no idea what Jesus called here and he called him a fox, you know. And for them that was, that was, and of course it got Jesus into trouble as we know. So, as much as humour was a part of how Jesus spoke and addressed the crowds, um, his, his life, his time on earth was not and is not to be taken lightly. It's the most significant life that's ever been lived. His life and his death has implications for mankind for 2,000 years and right till today. His life and his death and his resurrection has shaped and changed history and the cosmos and millions of lives since, like no other event, like no other person. It's been said that there are two types of people, those who laugh at God and those who laugh with God. Let me explain. Some people do laugh quite hysterically at God, don't they? And we see that in when, when some, some Christian or religious stuff is in the media, we get the feedback from people who, who laugh at God. You may have even had it yourself where, where people have said, oh, you don't believe that stuff, do you? It's fairy tale stuff, you don't believe it. And others would say, on a different level, would say, you know, when, when we're faced with things like pain and suffering, they would say, well, hey, come on, if God is really there, if he's really powerful, he would deal with that stuff. Or if he was loving, he would never allow that to happen. And they laugh, they mock, they sneer at God in that way. We need to address that sometime, maybe that particular topic as well. But others on another level laugh at God in a, in a more discreet way. And guys, you probably understand this, but sometimes we'll be doing something that's maybe complicated, a bit complex, or it requires a bit of hard work or a bit of heavy muscle, and someone will come along and offer us help. And in our pride, we carry on doing it ourselves, don't we? I was lifting something onto a trailer the other day, and a younger guy came in, a young guy came in, he was about 55, and <laughs> he came along and offered to help me. And I said, no, 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 I, I can do it. I'm all right. I'm okay. 
And I did it, but I would have been far better to put my pride aside and say, yeah, give us a hand, eh? But we don't. And often God taps us on the shoulder or whispers in our ear in the difficult times of life or when we really need a help to shift some stuff from inside that needs to be shifted. Maybe it's generational stuff, maybe it's stuff that we know we need to deal with. And God comes along, either by his own voice or by the voice of a friend, someone we know, and says, I can help. I can be with you. I can work this through. I want to journey with you. I want you to enjoy life with me. And we kind of put the stop sign off. We laugh. We say, oh, God, I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need that. And there are three ways that we can resist God or laugh at God in that way. We say, God, and now we kind of consign God to being unnecessary. God, I don't need you. I can, I can handle this myself. Or we consign God to being incapable. God, there's, there's nothing that you can add to my, my predicament that I can't deal with myself. Or we consign God to being irrelevant and saying, well, you really don't know what's happening in here. You're a God of maybe 2,000 years ago, but not for the 21st century and certainly not for my life. And because we find God unnecessary or think God's unnecessary or incapable or irrelevant, we say no to him and we laugh at him. Or we can laugh with God. We can say, yeah, there is some stuff that I need dealing with. There's some stuff that needs moved in my life and it's too heavy for me to handle. I need help with the pain that I'm experiencing. I need help with the stuff that, that I know is wrong that needs to be dealt with. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And it all comes from a separation from him that is constantly putting a hand up and saying, God, I resist you. God, I don't need you. And all we need to do is say, God, I want to turn that around. I want to, I want to walk and enjoy this journey of life with you. Acknowledging that's how you were made. Acknowledging that, that he knows us better than we know ourselves. Everything about us. The worst stuff of my life could be put on that screen behind us. And I'd probably run out the door. And you'd be left there gasping as well. But he's seen it and he continues to love me impartially, unconditionally. He wants to deal with the stuff that we know we can't deal with. Maybe you'd like to make that shift this morning. Maybe God has spoken to you and say, hey, listen, stop putting the, the stop sign up. And I want to give you an invitation just in a moment. I'm going to ask you to do two things. Firstly, I'm going to pray. And then if you really believe this morning that God has been speaking to you about making a shift in your life. I want you just to kind of follow me in your prayer. Okay, as our, our, our heads will be bowed and say, no one's putting hands up, just, just your heads will be bowed and your eyes will be closed. Just follow me in that prayer. Then afterwards, when we're finished, if you want to make that first step of saying, God, I want to, I want to start this journey with you. Maybe have a chat with someone who's brought you to the, today or a friend that you know here. Or maybe Dean and Gina, Dino and Gina, or one of the elders, or myself, will be down the front here. But in making that first step, you may at this time not know a lot about God or what He's got for you. In fact, you may not know a lot about your life either. But that's okay. It's just giving all that you know of yourself right now to all that you know of God right now. 
And that's a first step. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do love us. That you were there when we were being formed in our mother's wombs. That you know, that you charted every day of our life. That you love us intensely. And that you have an incredible plan for us if we hook into you and we begin the journey with you. We thank you for all you've done. We thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. We thank you for the life that gives us, the freedom and the enjoyment and the journey with you. Thank you, thank you so much. And Lord, I just pray now that if there are those here who just need to pray this prayer with me, and I pray that you just, just kind of follow these words and, and agree with them as we pray. Father, I, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and you died on a cross for me. And in doing so, you made it possible for me to have a relationship with you and with God, your Father. And I don't know much about you at the moment. I don't know much about my life, but I do want to start a journey with you. I do want to commence a, a walk with you that, that is fresh and brand new. And I ask you, you right now that you would enable me to make that first step. Give me the strength to take that first step with you. Help me to be a person who is committed to you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. So if you've prayed that prayer, or kind of agreed with me as I've prayed it, and afterwards if you would like to chat with somebody, please do, or the person who's brought you along. We're going to... um,